Welcome to the C3 Silicon Valley Church Podcast. Senior pastors Adam and Kira Smalcom are so excited to share this message with you and believe that God will speak to you through it. Here at C3SV, we know that God has the best in store for you today and every day. It's great to be here. What a great part of the world you live in, really. I mean, what an incredible part of the world you live in. I heard that it rained here for like the first time in nine months or something. Is that true? I mean, that is like your presence. Oh, it's heaven to me. I mean, living in a place like that where it doesn't rain for nine months, that is a miracle. People, just understand what you're living in. I mean, that is incredible. It is really an honor and a privilege to be here with you this morning. I am, as Pastor Adam said, I am from Planet Shakers originally. Uh, We were fortunate enough and blessed enough to be part of establishing that movement uh, in Australia a couple of years ago now, and uh, started that when we were little, and I haven't grown much since then, but I'm a little bit older. (laughs) I grew up with three sisters, and uh, that's kind of why I'm a little bit sort of vertically challenged. That's, that's a bit of a lie. I'm actually, believe it or not, I'm the tallest one in my family. I, we have, I have three sisters and my mum and dad, they're all, all kind of shorter than I am, which is, you know, I'm not going to talk anymore about how little I am. Anyhow, it's great to be here. And uh, we, uh, my wife and I and my family actually relocated to Nashville, Tennessee. Y'all, we have, we have banned the word y'all from our house. In fact, it should be banned from, I mean, does anyone here actually, is anyone from the South? Hey, y'all. Yeah, okay. Bless your heart. But unfortunately, it's not, it's not grammatically, it's not a word. It cannot be a word. And especially when you start using it like y'alls. There is no, there is nowhere in the English grammatical language rules that allows for two apostrophes in one word. It just doesn't exist, all right? So my kids, you know, I'm, we're kind of banning that sort of stuff and, and, and we, we, we're kind of trying to, you know, have this thing that words that have one syllable remain with one syllable. If you know what I'm talking about, it's hair. It's not hair. Look at my hair. We're going to the theater. So we're, we're trying to kind of keep that a little bit level in our, in our family. Anyhow, we, uh, we relocated to, to Nashville about 18 months ago, and uh, it was a long journey for us, something that initially we didn't really want to do, but over a period of a couple of years, God really uh, just opening the door for us and speaking to us, and who knows that it's better to obey than to just do what you want to do, right? You know, sometimes it doesn't make sense, but you just got to step out in obedience, and uh, our prayer was... When, when we felt God speak to us, our prayer was, well, God, if, if you'll do this, if you'll do a miracle for, for us, then we'll, we'll just know. Anyone ever prayed that prayer before? God, I think you're talking to me, but I'm just going to put that fleece out because I just want to make sure. Obviously, it was a big move for us. And so we heard about this thing called the, the green card lottery or the diversity visa lottery that every Aussie in the room has said, yes, amen and amen to that. I know all about it. For you American folk who have never heard about it, every year, the U.S. government government give away a certain amount of permanent residencies to your country. It's called the diversity visa lottery. And the only eligibility that you have to have is, you know, finishing high school and proving that you're not going to be a burden to society here in America, which hope to God we won't be. But we applied for this. The year that we applied, 14 million people applied for this uh, lottery. 
They only give out 50,000, but they only open 700 slots to Australians out of that 14 million to get through. And so they drew it. Long story short, we didn't get it. We celebrated. We partied. We said, thank you, Jesus. We get to stay in the land of kangaroos and koalas and Vegemite and all that other crazy stuff. And two days later, we got an email from the U.S. State Department in true American fashion saying, well, somehow we messed the whole thing up. <clears throat> Sorry, I didn't really say that. And I'm just messing. I love this country so much. And they revoked the 20,000 that they'd already awarded in those two days. They canceled them. 20,000 people who thought at that point they were moving to America had their hopes dashed upon the rocks by the U.S. government. We should probably stop talking about the government in here. I honor them with all my heart. <laughs> Three months later, they redrew it. And lo and behold, my wife and I were selected and we uh, got permanent residency here in America for life. And, you know, we, we come from an amazing church and a church that we had many years ago started a, a youth conference called Planet Shakers. And a few years after that, we uh, moved cities, planted this church from nothing. There was my senior pastor and his wife and my wife and myself and one other staff member. We moved cities. We planted a church. And within sort of seven or eight years, the church was almost 10,000 people, which in Australia is, is a pretty big deal. And praise God, because that was absolutely to the glory of God. But, you know, for us to leave that and move all the way across the world to, you know, really the middle of nowhere, you know, it's just this tiny little town of a million people, not even, called Nashville. A society, a culture that we didn't totally understand. You know, it's, it's, not, it's not even like moving to California. You know, like, at least we'd have beaches and oceans and we could keep surfing and all that. We moved to like, we're, not, we're eight hours away from the nearest ocean. I mean, that's like depressing just the thought of it. And there we are. God moved us from a massive church to a place where we're like, God, what are we even doing here? God begins to tune us into what's happening in the spiritual climate in Nashville. And it's an amazing city, and I have so much respect for it and the people that are there. But there are so many people that have moved there to become performers, to become artists, that it's become a very professional town. And so you, you won't generally find worship like you've experienced here in this place this morning. It's, it's very much about performers and artists and all that sort of stuff. And there's very little discipleship that goes on. And so God began to speak to my wife and I about just gathering people together in our home on a Tuesday night and just sowing into their lives, just pouring into them the, the, the many, many years that we've had poured into us. And so right now we're meeting in our home just with a bunch of people every other Tuesday night, seeing God do incredible things, seeing marriages be brought back together, seeing people who are, you know, prominent, significant in society, in our world, being touched by the presence of God. And that's, you know, friends, you couldn't ask for anything better. That's what we're called to do. We're called to be salt and light. We're called to be salt and light. Wherever you are, wherever your place of influence is this morning, that's what you're called to be. You're called to be salt and light. Begin to spread the, the infectiousness of the presence of God. I love that we were talking about the presence of God this morning and I, I wrestled. I'm not going to speak this message, but there's one thing that I, I'm going to speak another message. There's something that I just wanted to share with you this morning from Exodus 33. You know, God begins to speak to Moses about, uh, about sending him into the promised land with the people of God, his chosen people. And he lays it out for them. 
gives them the promise. Promises that when they get there, it's going to be a land filled with milk and honey. It's going to be a land of incredible blessing for not just them as a generation, but for the generations to come. And they go through this whole long list. But at one point in that passage of Scripture, God says, but I will not go with you because you're a stiff-necked, a stubborn people. And Moses says, but but God, what, what do you mean? We don't want to go into that place without your presence. And so often, we get caught up with the promise more so than the presence. And I love Moses' response because he says, God, even though the promise looks amazing, even though it's the thing that we have walked around in this desert for 40 years talking about, we've dreamed about it, we've told our children about it, we've promised our children that their children will inherit all the goodness of that place. But God, I'm not going to forfeit your presence just to have the promise. And I love that this morning in this place, we've been talking about the presence because there is nothing greater that you can have. You know what, friends? I, I, I thought we were going to stay in Australia forever doing what we were doing with Planet Shakers. I thought that, you know, I was going to get to the point where I was like 70 something and, you know, maybe have a frame up there on stage and, you know, resting my guitar on it because I can't even stand. I thought that we were going to keep doing that, but God had something else for us to bring in. It wasn't just about promise. It was about presence. See, God wants to surround your life with his presence to bring it into every situation. So anyhow, that's what we're doing in Nashville, Tennessee. Praise God. Bless God. Hate the devil. Yeehaw. I've seen more cowboy boots in one year than I have ever thought possible in my whole life. Worship is the gateway to the presence. Worship is the gateway to the presence. That's all I'm going to say about that. I'll preach that message another time when I come back. But I do want to speak to you. I did wake up this morning feeling the Holy Spirit stir me about, uh, about something. It's funny, you know, like, I know you guys have been, you've been talking about worship a little bit with church and stuff. When I, when I first, I kind of grew up in, uh, in a, like, more traditional type church. Hated it. Just hated going to church. I'd sneak out of church every week as a, as a young person because I just, I hated that it was so religious and it was so disconnected from the world that I knew, from what my friends and I were doing, what we were listening to, what we were seeing. There was such a disconnect. And, but what I, what I discovered in church is that we kind of have, we have our own language. You know what I'm talking, if you've been, if you've been a Christian for more than like three weeks, you probably understand that it's, it's easy to fall in this thing of having our own language. You know, I, I, I used to, I used to think that you know, when I started going to this, this other church when I was kind of in my late teens and I gave my heart to the Lord, and I would come to church and I, I noticed something that I thought church started at 10, so I'd get there at 10. And what I noticed was that there was singing happening up on the stage and stuff. But it was kind of like I thought it was optional because about half the church didn't come till about 10, 15, 10, 20, all right? You know, hopefully that doesn't happen here, right? <clears throat> hopefully. <clears throat> bless you. If you came in late, I understand things happen. But see, as a young person, I used to watch this and because what was happening in the first sort of 15 or 20 minutes of, of, the, of the church service was back in the day before church was kind of cool, they used to do this thing called the Pentecostal two-step, which kind of, I, I don't even know if I can kind of do it, but it was this kind of, you know, 
weirdo sort of thing, and they would do all these, these weird actions and stuff. And what I figured out was they called it praise. They called that the praise time. But what I discovered was praise was actually Christianese for aerobics. It was kind of like the people who were too cheap to get a gym membership or, you know, and they kind of woke up on a Sunday morning and went, oh, I ate a little bit too much, you know, last night. I better go to church and just kind of work. So they'd come and they'd do their little dance and whatever else. And the people that were like fit and healthy and cool, they would just come, you know, when they wanted to, sipping their coffee because they didn't need to do the praise aerobics, right? And then, you know, then after that, they do this thing that, that they called worship, which was when it all slowed down and stuff. And I was like, of course, that's the cool down. You know, it's like everyone lifts their hands, just kind of lets the sweat out and lets their aroma begin to minister to the people around them. And, and I thought that praise and worship were, were different styles or different sounds or different ways. And, and to some degree that they, they are. But the more that I got involved with the worship team, the more I thought they became about musical styles. You know, praise was like the, it had to be above like 108 beats a minute because you had to be able to at least get some sort of jump, you know, some sort of, might be slow and you kind of do the, the hop or it might be real fast and you just got, or you might just kind of do some sort of little, little jig or something. And then worship had to be like slow enough that you could just kind of sway a little bit and and, 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 you know, praise had to be like in the key of B for all you guitar players out there. And I thought it was all about musical styles, but see, it's not at all. We use those musical styles, those musical expressions to actually express what those things are. Worship doesn't need music. We use music as a tool, as a vehicle to express our love and our devotion to the one who has saved us, the one who set us free, the one who's healed us, the one who's given us grace, redemption, forgiveness, everything that we need, our salvation we find in Him and we express back our love, our devotion to Him through song. But see, praise praise is kind of one of those things that a lot of churches just think it's a bit of a filler at the start of church. It's, you know, it's make everyone feel a bit happy and bright and up and, you know, hopefully everyone can f- forget about the argument that they have with their spouse about you know, you were supposed to get the kids ready. No, you were, you told me that, you know, hopefully they've forgotten about that by the time they kind of have a little dance together. Yeah, that's all, that's all. But friends, praise is much more than a musical style. It's much more than an expression. It's much more than a, just a, a few jumps getting a little bit sweaty on a Sunday morning. It's, it's, it's about a declaration of who God is in your life. It's about declaring over your life and over the people around you that God is good and that God is in control. And so I, I want to just just look at this uh, particular passage this morning because I, I don't know if you've noticed, but sometimes you might find yourself in an imperfect situation. But what you've got to understand is though there might be imperfection around you, God remains perfect. Your situation may not be perfect. But God is always perfect. It may not look like it's perfect, but we got to trust that God in His perfection is in control. Acts chapter 16. Sometimes you need a radical, sometimes you need a radical act to bring a radical result. Acts 16 verse 16, it says this. Once when we were going to the place of prayer, We were met by a female slave who had a spirit by which she predicted the future. 
She earned a great deal of money for her owners by fortune telling. She followed Paul and the rest of us shouting, These men are servants of the Most High God who are telling you the way to be saved. I had to shout that because it said it was, you know, sometimes we read the Bible and we go, and she shouted, These men are servants of the Most No, no, she shouted. This, these are not fairy tales. These are real accounts of things that God was doing in people's lives. She kept this up. I mean, like, just, just picture yourself there. Paul and Silas minding their own business, walking down the street, you know, the mall or wherever they are, and this girl comes up and starts screaming. Now, she had a demon spirit, so maybe she wasn't screaming like a girl. She might have been screaming like, I mean, it could have, it, it could have sounded a little ugly, all right? It doesn't say that she did it once or twice. It says that she kept it up for days. I mean, I'd be like after five minutes, just piped, just shut it, woman, just for days. She's just going on and on and on. Eventually, Paul, be, I love this because this is, doesn't say Paul with the grace of Jesus Christ turned to her. It says Paul became so annoyed. I'm like, yes, I'm not the only one. Thank you, Jesus. Paul became so annoyed that he turned around and said to the Spirit, in the name of Jesus Christ, I command you to come out of her. And at that moment, the Spirit left. Verse 19, when her owners realized that their hope of making money was gone, they seized Paul and Silas, dragged them into the marketplace to face the authorities. They brought them before the magistrates and said, These men are Jews and are throwing our city into an uproar by advocating customs unlawful for us Romans to accept or practice. Lie. The crowd joined in the attack against Paul and Silas, and the magistrates ordered them to be stripped and beaten with rods. After they had been severely flogged, they were thrown into prison, and the jailer was commanded to guard them carefully. When he received these orders, he put them in the inner cell and fastened their feet in stocks. About midnight, I love this. I mean, picture yourself there. You're in a situation that is completely just downright not fair. You didn't do anything to deserve it. Stuff was stirred up around you. Next thing, you're, you're basically brought before the authorities. You're taken to the, the, the judge who declares that because you told someone to be quiet who was annoying the heck out of you for four days... You are wrongfully accused. Not only are you thrown in jail, but you're stripped, you're flogged, and you're beaten, and you're locked in the inner cell. I mean, this situation is out of control. I don't know if you've ever found yourself in a place where you feel like it's so far out of control that God must be nowhere in sight. Friends, we've got to trust that in the imperfect situation, God is still perfect. Verse 25, about midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns to God, and the other prisoners were listening to them. I don't know about you, but I I probably would have been cowering in a corner, you know, licking my wounds, trying to look after myself. The last thing that I'm thinking about doing is antagonizing anyone else. There's already been enough disaster surrounding this situation. There's already been enough opposition. There's already been enough stuff where they could have just said, that's it, we're done. But Paul and Silas begin to lift their voice 
begin to sing. They, they didn't care about their circumstance. They didn't care who was watching. They didn't care who was listening. They didn't even care about the potential that the other prisoners had to come and, and, and beat them, murder them, do something severely disgusting to them in the midst of that situation. They just begin to lift up their song to God. And they keep worshiping and singing. It says, as they were doing that, suddenly there was such a violent earthquake that the foundations of the prison were shaken. At once, all the prison doors flew open and everyone's chains came loose. The jailer woke up and when he saw the prison doors open, he drew his sword and was about to kill himself because he thought the prisoners had escaped. But Paul shouted, don't harm yourself. We are all here. The jailer called for the lights, rushed in and felt fell trembling before Paul and Silas. He then brought them out and asked, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? You know what I love about Paul and Silas? In the middle of the darkest situation, they don't sit in the corner looking for a plan. They look for his presence. They don't look for a plan to get themselves out. They don't go, well, somehow we've wound up here. They don't sit there and go, well, somehow our business has gone down the toilet and we've lost all our money. We've gone bankrupt. We've lost our house, whatever. They don't start looking for a plan. They just, they look for his presence. Because what they do in the midst of that situation is take their eyes off their circumstance, off their surrounding, and begin to lift them to heaven because they know that's where their help comes from. I don't know if you're facing something this morning. We're going to go there this morning, but I don't know if you're facing something. But right now you feel like everything around you is out of control. Well, friend, let me, let me, let me encourage you. Let me stir you with this this morning. In the midst of that, God still has a plan. Don't look for your own plan. Look for his presence. Allow his presence to come and minister to you. Come and surround you. The Bible says the steps of a good man are ordered by, not by his own good plans or his own hard work, but are ordered by the Lord. You know, sometimes we, we spend so much time focusing on our own plan, focusing on the, the promise like we were talking about before. God, you've promised that we're going to make it to a land full of milk and honey. We, you, we've, we've talked about this for so long. We know that that's the goal. And all the while, God's saying, don't worry about the plan. Don't worry about the destination. This is the most important thing right now. It's not actually about where you end up. It's not actually about how this situation even turns out. The most important thing is my presence. You understanding my presence in the midst of your situation right now. My wife and I, we, um, we, uh, we, we've been married for 15 years. Got married when we were about seven. <laughs> That's legal in Australia. No, I'm just kidding. We, uh, I definitely married up. If you've ever seen photos of my wife, yes, I definitely married up. Praise the Lord. Said all the men who married up. Yes. Hallelujah. We've been married for a couple of years. And uh, I guess we'd been married when we were married for about two years. My wife went to the doctors one day, you know, with this young couple. And we're, you know, believing that we're going to be able to have kids. And we're going to, you know, have these little munchkins that are going to grow up and be, you know, mighty men, mighty women for God and do great things and all that sort of stuff. Believing that God's going to move through our kids' lives. Because... Someone had actually prophesied over my wife before we, we were married that she would have a girl and a boy. She'd have a daughter and a son. And so we, you know, we're holding on to this promise, believing, thank you, Jesus. And then one day, you know, after a couple of years of lots of practice, we weren't having any babies. And so my wife goes off to the doctors this one day, and, and uh, true story, her, 
Her doctor's name was Dr. Needle. Kind of know that that's destiny stamped on your life when you're a doctor and your name's Dr. Needle. <clears throat> Unlike another doctor we knew of in the city that we lived in at the time, whose name was Dr. Slaughter. I don't know about you, but I would probably not go and see Dr. Sl- I'm sure he was a very nice doctor, but I- I'm not going to go. Where are you going? Well, I'm going to see Dr. Slaughter. Okay, it's not looking good for you. So my wife goes and sees this beautiful lady, Dr. Needle. And uh, anyway, they do all these tests and they're trying to work out why she can't get pregnant. And uh, a couple of weeks later, they call my wife back in and, and sit her down and, and they said, Alex, um, the results have come back. And basically, we've diagnosed you as, as having this condition called hyperprolactinemia, which took a long time for me to learn how to say that. But it's a very long word to describe this tiny little microscopic tumor on the base of her pituitary gland that was fooling her body into thinking that she was already pregnant. And so she couldn't conceive. And uh, yeah, it's a pretty, pretty serious diagnosis. And the doctors sat with her and she said, listen, there's two things that you can do. Number one, we can put you on like a, a very mild kind of chemotherapy type drug in the hopes that we can shrink the tumor. We don't think that it'll ever go away. But if we shrink it, hopefully it will have some sort of effect. But the risk with that is this drug is so strong that it'll make you feel uh, you know, nauseous and you'll lose a lot of weight. And if you do conceive, it's so strong that it will probably kill the baby in your womb before you even realize that you're pregnant. So we don't recommend that you do that. Really? Okay, thank you. And Alex is like, well, what's the other choice? She sat her down and looked in her eyes and she said, sweetheart, what we recommend that you do is to go home and explain the situation to your husband and then make a decision that you'll never talk about having children again. And as a young couple, my wife walked through the door, tears streaming down her face, and comes and delivers this news. You know, I remember sitting in our kitchen, this tiny little house that we lived in, and sat at the kitchen table, and tears running down our faces saying, God, what? This doesn't make sense. We thought that you promised this, but all we're seeing right now is the complete opposite. As we sat and talked, all of a sudden something began to stir inside of me. Something began to register in my mind that the situation didn't smell right. You know, like it just, it was just a little bit, it was just something about it smelled a little fishy. So we made a decision as we sat at that kitchen bench that night, probably the hardest decision that we had made in our lives. We made a decision that rather than agreeing with what the doctors were saying, we were going to press in and believe for a miracle. Rather than coming into, a, in, into agreement with what the natural dictated to us, that we were going to appeal beyond the natural, to the super, the natural, the supernatural, to our God who resides over and above this natural earth. We say, God, this is what this this situation is right now. 
Right now, we feel like we're locked up in this prison cell. Right now, we feel like the enemy's coming and beating and abusing and smashing us around here. But we're not going to give up hope. We're not going to sit back and take the beating. We're going to stand up. We're going to stand up and praise. We're going to stand up and worship. We're going to stand up. And all these songs that we've been singing for years that have been words up on the screen, all of a sudden, they begin to make sense. All of a sudden, they begin to have substance. They begin to have weight. It's so easy for us to come into church and, our God is greater, our God is stronger. Oh, but my life's really terrible. And, you know, I just got all this, God, you are higher than most other things. No, no, God is higher than everything. You are greater. You are good. You are stronger. You are my healer. Even if I haven't seen it yet, you're my healer. You know, I'd love to say that it was a, a few weeks later or even a few months later, that we got our miracle, but it wasn't. It wasn't even a year later. In fact, it might be my mum right now. Just tell her hi. <laughs> For the next three years, we go on this journey of believing God, pressing in. And you know what's one of the craziest things that happened was it wasn't people that came to us and said stuff to our face, but it was the whispers that we would hear from people. Not outside of church. Inside of church. Haven't they heard? Didn't they read the report? Didn't they see that it's impossible for them to have children? Didn't they read that? Didn't they hear what the doctor said? It's not possible. It's not possible. What, what, they're just they're being crazy. Oh, this so super spiritual. And all the little whispers that began to stir up around us, because we began to walk this journey of faith, and we made a decision that, well, if God's promised it, then we're going to walk life as though it's already happening. You know, we begin. We have always traveled a lot, and so we begin to talk about what life was going to be like. You know, walking through the airport. You know, guitars and pedal boards that weigh like a million pounds and all this stuff. And like, you know, one kid there and one kid there. And, you know, that's kind of why we were like, we better not have any more than two kids because, you know, I've got one, she's got the other. Where's the third one? I mean, they could be like on the conveyor belt. They could be out by the cab stand. I mean, who knows? So we're like, we better not pray for anything more than two, but we're just going to pray and believe. We began to talk about what it was going to be like to be on the plane. I don't know. Have any of you ever flown from L.A. to Melbourne? Or Sydney, anyone ever done that flight? A handful of you, okay. You'd understand something if you've done that. It's, it's probably, it's, it's one of the worst things ever. I mean, it is like, you know, you, you, you get up in the middle of the flight and you turn around, especially if you're sitting in economy, and you, it's, like, it's like a third world country. I mean, it's like, it, it's, there, is, there are no words to explain the visuals and the aroma of what happens when 450 people are stuffed in a big aluminium tube that's flying 15 hours across the, across the earth. I mean, and then add to that the baby factor. If you've ever got on a plane and walked to your seat and realized that there is like a Nursing mother sitting, you know, within about 10 rows of you. There's, there's this panic that comes over you. It's like, no, 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 I can't do this. God, no, please, please, please. I got to get off this plane. I got to get off this. Please, Jesus, no. Rapture right now, please. Come on, let's just do this. 
And we begin to pray these prayers and say, well, God, if that's what it takes, if that's what it's going to look like, not just for us, but for the people around us, then we want them. We don't care. We don't care if we're that young couple getting on that flight from Melbourne to LA and we sit down and we're the ones with that baby that just is that front door. That baby. For like 15 hours until like you land in LA and that baby and falls asleep. We don't care if we're the ones with like the poopy diaper, the, the whole planks. We're like, God, if our miracle needs to get a little bit on the nose of the people around us, we don't really care because they're going to see the miracle that you've done. See, friends, sometimes it's got to get a little bit ugly. Sometimes your praise has got to get a little ugly. Sometimes you've got to stand up and begin to declare things that people around you might think are crazy. They might look at you and ridicule you. They might look at you and think you've got nuts in the head. But when God has given you a promise... We've got to stand up and stand strong upon his word. And then there was the day. The day that my wife, like any other weekend, we went to church. She's standing in a meeting with her hands raised, just worshiping. She's not focused on the plan. She's not focused on the promise. She's focused on the presence Hands lifted high. The Holy Spirit whispers into her heart and says, Daughter, you're healed. She says, Really? God says, It's done. About a month or two later, we do the little test and bingo. Yeah. What the doctors said was an absolute impossibility. God turned it into a miracle. My, my daughter, Holly, just turned 10 a couple of weeks ago. And see, here's the crazy thing. I don't have any photos of her up here, but follow me on Instagram and scroll through. You'll see pictures of my daughter. And the thing is, when the devil tried to tell us that we couldn't have it, not only did we agree that we could, we began to write down the specifics. Because we didn't want it to be a random miracle that people would go, you just got lucky. We didn't want it to be about luck. We didn't want there to be any question about whether God had done something miraculous in our lives because we stood up and praised and believed. So we began to write a list. I have green eyes. My wife has brown eyes. And they tell us that we shouldn't really have kids with blue eyes. So what what do we do? We began to pray that our kids would have the most striking blue eyes, that when people would see them, and I mean literally like eyes that look like marbles, you know, so that when people would see them, they would stop in their tracks and we'd be able to share about the miracle that God had done. And if you see, especially when they were first born, my kids, they came out and once their eyes turned from black to blue, their eyes were like almost bigger than their heads. You know, like they were like so, and we'd push them down the street in the stroller and all you'd see out of the stroller, you wouldn't see even her face. You would just see these eyes. It's kind of like gizmo, all right? Just... These massive, massive, and people would literally stop in the mall, stop in the street, stop, and they, you know, we'd begin to pray that they'd have this gorgeous curly hair and that they, you know, their personality, they'd be, you know, certain ways and all, and they'd have a, a soft heart for God, all this sort of stuff. And you know what? God answered every one of our prayers. So then people said, well, you got lucky. So a couple of years later, we prayed again. 
and felt God needed to fulfill the rest of the prophecy that we would have a daughter and a son. So we prayed and believed and went through a whole struggle with that the second time around, but had another, uh, had a son whose t- name is Taylor, who's six years old. And he honestly, if you, if, if you get a photo of Holly when she was one and a, Taylor, uh, a photo of Taylor when he is one and you put them next together, they look like they are the same person. I mean, their eyes, their face, their everything about them. We didn't get lucky, friends. We prayed the same list and said, God, you did it once, you can do it again. But you know what? What was so fascinating about this scenario, not only, did, and this is what I love about this, this passage, because so often we're, we're consumed with our own circumstance. We're so focused on our own promise, our own healing, our own miracle that we need, our own breakthrough. God, don't you see what's going on in my finances right now? God, don't you see what's going on in my body right now? God, I need a miracle for me. And God's saying, no, you need a miracle for everybody around you. We're so focused on how it looks for ourselves, how it feels for us. God, don't you see? Don't you have mercy? God's like, you don't understand my mercy. You don't understand how immense my grace is. Not only have I got grace and mercy for you and your situation right now, it's actually to extend and flood out and flow to those people around you. At that time in our church, when we were going through this whole struggle, there were a bunch of couples Young couples, kind of our age at the time, that were struggling to have kids. And I remember this one day, God giving me this whole revelation about the fact that the seed of the godly men and women was under attack. It was under assault from the enemy. You know, you hear of teenage pregnancies by the hundreds, yet these godly men and women struggling to have children. There's an attack of the enemy because he hears the whisper. He sees the potential of what can happen when a young man or a young woman is, is raised up in a house full of faith, a house full of praise, a house full of the presence of God. There's an assault. So we begin to pray for people around us. But you know what the greatest breakthrough was? Was when they saw us get pregnant. I'll never forget this day. This one couple who had came to us when they announced at church that, Alex was pregnant. This, this one couple came to us, tears running down their face. For five years, they've been trying to have kids. Doctors couldn't figure out what was going on in this situation. There was nothing physically wrong with them. But there was something standing in the way of their miracle. They came to us with tears running down their face. And they said, in the whole time that we've watched you, Never once did we hear you say, if God does a miracle. We only ever heard you say, when we have a baby, when we have our miracle, when God does this in our lives, when God fulfills his promise. You know, within about three months, that couple were pregnant, and now they've got tons of kids, literally. And they were the first. It was like couple after couple after couple who would struggle. Now, was it because we had anything to do with it? No, no, no. We just stood up and believed God in the midst of our struggle. Not only did God set us free, just like the prisoners locked up in that prison cell. Not only did God set Paul and Silas free, he set free every person that were in chains around them. Got to walk out of that place. Got to experience their freedom. You know, friends, your, your miracle is not just about you. Your praise is not just for you. 
It's not just to fill in a bit of time on a Sunday morning. Your praise is so that you get a breakthrough that the people in your workplace, the people who are in, you know, whatever, company X around here, I've spoken too many names and government things this morning, so I'm, I'm just, I'm just going <clears> to, <throat> you know, that company and this other big company and that company that does my email and, you know, all those, all those things, all those people around us who are so consumed with their own burdens right now, you know what they need to see more than anything? They don't just need to, to hear about, you know, crazy experiences. They need to see the reality of the presence of God in your life. They need to see you. They... Trust me, you've got a situation, whether you're walking through it now or whether it's coming, you've got a situation that God's going to give you enough grace for that you'll be able to see that it's not just about you, it's about your colleague, it's about the person in the cubicle across from you, it's about the person on the desk next to you, it's about the person around you getting a breakthrough from heaven. We're, we're going to be done. But maybe we can just stand to our feet right now and we can just close our eyes for a second. There's two things that we want to do before we, we wrap up this morning. One of the things I love so much about this church is that this church doesn't exist for the sake of the church or the brand or the organization. It exists for you. It exists for you, whoever you are, whether you've been here for a year or whether this is your first time here, whether you've been in church your whole life or whether you've never experienced what we experience today, ever. Friends, all of this is about you having an encounter with the living God, with Jesus Christ. Thank you for listening to today's message. We trust you heard from God and that you're more encouraged, more refreshed, and more in love with Jesus than you were before. If you ever find yourself in the Bay Area, we'd love for you to come and attend a service. For more information about C3SB, please visit www.c3sb.com.